Good evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. Well, hard to believe um, tomorrow marks the, the midpoint of the week. And to let you all know, the episode we're going to be uh, discussing in the uh, War of 1812 in Wisconsin, the Battle for Prairie du Chien by Mary Elise Antoine. This will be our final uh, episode uh, for this uh, book. So this episode is going to focus on um, a couple of segments. The news of peace, peace and its aftermath, and a conclusion. Three in one. I figured the best way to go about ending this series on a good note was to consolidate what was left that had not been discussed and by consolidating it all into one all of you my fellow uh, 101 listeners out there will come away with a better understanding of how this conflict comes to an end you know all conflicts even though they may not be pleasant have to end, they have to end at some point. Of course, conflicts themselves just don't end overnight. Some conflicts that have been raging for a long time don't always get resolved right away, but they do get resolved through time, but that doesn't always mean that everybody walks away on good terms. So what we're going to uh, find out with regards to the news of peace, peace and its aftermath and the conclusion to the War of 1812 in Wisconsin, the Battle for Prairie du Chien, we're going to find out who comes away victorious. We're going to find we're going to find out who comes away um, not so much as the loser, but who um, comes away on the short end of the stick, and which group of peoples, or people for that matter end up getting displaced. So let's uh, fasten our seatbelts and be prepared uh, for another upcoming uh, podcast episode that is being our final episode to the series The War of 1812 in Wisconsin. I'd say it's been a good one and probably by far the most challenging one I've done with all the books I've shared with you all, uh, my listeners. But I don't regret it one bit because... Um, from time to time, we all need a good challenge. And this one in particular was one of those challenges that I probably needed. So, our uh, lead-off question for this um, final uh, podcast uh, segment of this series is the following. What took place overseas that was in the beginning stages come August of 1814? Overseas, folks. What could that mean? Could it mean uh, some kind of uh, business ne negotiation in Europe? Well, when I think of overseas, I think of uh, something taking place abroad. It could be in any part of the world, but more than likely it's got to be in Europe. So the answer to the question is the following. Well, first off, I'll repeat the question again. What took place overseas that was in the beginning stages come August 1814? The start of negotiations between representatives from the United States and Britain to end the conflict, a.k.a. War of 1812. Okay, so both sides are coming to the realization 
come August of 1814, that there has to be a way out to this war. In other words, this war can't last forever, but both sides are coming to the realization that, well, I don't know if I'd say realization, but they, but they want to find a way to end the war. But little do the representatives from the United States know that their nation's capital is going to be on the in a short matter of uh, time, or short manner of time, rather, that the uh, U.S. delegation overseas will eventually realize or come to learn weeks or even a month or two after the incident happens that the burning of Washington will take place. But they will also find out that um, for all the bad that happened at Washington, that there will be good news to report, and that the United States as a nation survived, in large part because it held off a British advance into Baltimore and the American flag still stood tall and mighty, gave proof through the night, folks, through the darkest of hours, that our flag was still there. And Francis Scott Key witnessed it all aboard that uh, British um, ship, the HMS Tennant, or the Tunnant, however you want to pronounce it, so the commissioners in, in, on the American side overseas in Europe will, will get the bad news first, but they will also be relieved with good news knowing that the United States as a nation still exists. However, the British commissioners are very adamant on what they want. They had insisted that they were not responsible, however, in persuading the Indians to attack the Americans. How did the British try to persuade the mediators? After all, I'm sure there, has, there would have been a, some kind of third-party agents whom are impartial. That is, they're not favoring one side over the other, but there has to be some, um, someone like a judge or someone like a mediator whom will uh, preside over these uh, negotiations. It has to be impartial. But the uh, person, or the persons rather, are listening to what the British are saying, and that the British delegation, being the commissioners, had insisted that they were not responsible in persuading the Indians to attack the Americans. Rather, the British felt that the Indian nations had attacked the Americans out of self-defense. In other words, no one encouraged the Indians to partake in the um, barbaric activities that would have uh, occurred along the frontier. Only the Indians themselves would have uh, done that. Now, what do I mean by barbaric? Well, you know, I don't mean this the wrong way, but the Indians obviously are the ones that introduced guerrilla-style warfare. And guerrilla warfare, or rather I should say irregular-style warfare, is gruesome. People don't uh, lose their lives innocently. But then again, this style of uh, fighting had been taking place probably before the Europeans arrived into the New World, but it did take place most notably during the French and Indian War when Americans uh, were first introduced to this style of uh, fighting. So yes, the British insist that the Indian nations attack the Americans out of self-defense and fear that their lands would be taken away altogether but also in part because Britain believed that the United States as a nation had not fulfilled its promise in agreeing to protect the Indians 
from um, the provisions or articles laid out from the 1783 Treaty of Paris. So the British wanted to still blame the Americans. Is it fair to say that they are using this as a means of wanting to get some kind of payback on the Americans from what had happened 30 years earlier when they lost um, in the American Revolutionary War to a weaker nation like the United States, whom they still view at this stage in, um, in history at, at the beginnings of the 19th century, or rather into the second decade of the 19th century as an inferior nation? Yes. So the British commissioners, you know, here they've insisted that they were not responsible for encouraging the Indians to attack the Americans, but the British commissioners have favored the following in terms of what they wanted out of the uh, negotiation talks. They favored allowing lands to be placed into Indian hands along the Northwest Territory, preferably around Northwest Ohio. And does anybody know what city is in Northwest Ohio that borders Lake Erie? Of course, Northeastern Ohio, it's uh, the major city is uh, Cleveland. But in Northwest Ohio, it is Toledo. Okay, so when you think of Northwest Ohio, you think of Toledo. And Northwest Ohio borders what state to the north? Michigan. Um, other um, areas in the Northwest Territory that the British wanted um, lands to be placed into Indian hands were in northern Indiana. When you think of northern Indiana, think of uh, Gary, Hammond, Whiting. Think of South Bend, home to the University, home to, uh, the university of Notre Dame. The Fighting Irish. Matter of fact, most of you probably are wondering why is it called South Bend when it's in northern Indiana? Well, it's not so much South Bend being in north, northern Indiana, but the reason it's called South Bend is because it's uh, South Bend, Indiana is located on the, on the southerly bend of the St. Mary's River. In other words, South Bend, where South Bend is uh, positioned in northern Indiana, it's on the southernmost edge of the St. Mary's River that goes into Indiana. Then you have the majority of Michigan that the British commissioners uh, wanted Indian lands to retain. Northeast Illinois. Of course, when I think of northeastern Illinois, you might think of Chicago. You might think of uh, what we now know as Evanston, where Northwestern is, Northwestern University, that is. You might think of... Um, Areas just on the outskirts of Chicago, like we know as uh, Elgin. Um, uh, Elgin, we've got uh, Markham, uh, Joliet, just to name a few uh, spots. And then a majority of Wisconsin, which makes practical sense. After all, we are talking about the War of 1812 in Wisconsin. Isn't that fair to say, folks? The British also requested that the United States be prohibited from having a naval force on the Great Lakes. Okay, if the British don't want a, nav a naval force of the United States, or let alone just naval forces in general of the United States on the Great Lakes, then how can the United States establish any kind of significant uh, presence along these uh, bodies of water to uh, protect and defend our nation's national security should, should in the event an invasion from up north occur along the U.S., along the Canada-U.S. line. After all, who's living in Canada? 
Well, they're not just Canadians, folks. They are, if you think about it, the people who um, make up the majority of the, the Canadian population were those whom um, went into exile on the eve of um, the American Revolutionary War breaking out. They were loyalists. You know, most loyalists either went to England, they went to the Caribbean, or they went north to Canada, which became a um, haven for refugees loyal to the crown. Well, what exactly does, um, what exactly would the British commissioners want the United States to have? They got to have something out of this. The British commissioners favor, or rather I should say, supported Americans having fishing rights off Newfoundland. Okay, well, the people that would benefit the most from uh, the fishing rights off of Newfoundland would be those living in New England, like, you know, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Vermont, Connecticut, Rhode Island. At this point still, folks, Maine is not a state just yet. Maine won't become a state until 1820, but Massachusetts, uh, you know, we have to keep in mind that at one time all of Maine was um, owned by Massachusetts. So, so the only people that I could think of would benefit from the uh, fishing rights would be uh, those living in New England whom would have a greater stake going into Newfoundland uh, for fishing purposes. And this isn't recreational, folks. The fishing rights here would retain to uh, commercial purposes. Think about this, you know, finding, you know, fishing for, um, for an abundance of different kinds of fish that could be salted and transported to different parts of the world, most notably the Caribbean. So the U.S. commissioners <laughs> opposed all demands requested by the British delegation. Could you blame them? No. I think it's fair to say that even the United States has a right to have um, a naval force on the Great Lakes. Did any of the problems or issues that persisted at Prairie du Chien as of 1814 come to an end? Did any of the problems that would have existed at Prairie du Chien uh, come to an end Come to an end, rather I should say, as 1814 came to an end, did any of the problems that um, existed at Prairie du Chien go about coming to an end? Uh, yes, most notably, um, most notably uh, within the ranks of the upper level uh, British military. So we have to keep in mind, folks, that even as 1814 was coming to an end, Okay, yes, the British may have succeeded in burning Washington, the Capitol, and every other government building, with the exception of the uh, Patent Office, which they spared. But it doesn't mean that across the country, and what we now know as the Midwest and Northwest Territory, that British forces there are in an opposite uh, situation. They are dealing with uh, problems from within most notably of the upper uh, ranks of the British military uh, in terms of leadership, ranging from such men like Robert Dixon, Andrew Bolger, Robert McDowell, to name a prominent few. They went about blaming each other for internal failures resulting in the deaths of Indians 
to lacking the proper means of providing necessary provisions. Well, remember from the last podcast uh, about tensions at Fort McKay, just how um, dire the situations had become, multiple situations. That is, um, there were only two days left of adequate provisions. More and more Indians were coming to the prairie or to Michilimackinac for assistance, and yet there was not enough uh, proper, um, there just wasn't enough um there wasn't enough adequate supplies to give to all those people, considering that the British now were um, had to uh, ten to twenty thousand Indian peoples. I don't know how any how anybody could look over that many uh, people or that many um, tribal nations when you're when you don't even have an abundance of um, food and necessary supplies to uh, provide for those people short and long term. What did British officer Robert McDowell receive come mid-March 1815? Does anybody want to take a guess at what he received? Did he receive a promotion? Um, Did he receive... A demotion, or did he receive a formal letter? He received a formal letter. The letter came to him from Montreal, Quebec. The letter stated that a peace treaty had been signed at Ghent, Belgium, officially ending the War of 1812, dated December 24, 1814. So think about it, folks. Robert McDowell did not receive this formal letter. We have to think about how long it takes to um, send a letter in the 19th century, folks. We don't have two-day priority mail, overnight service. We're lucky if the person who receives the, the mail or the letter, even if it's two and a half months old, is still alive. A lot of things could go wrong between the time you write a letter and when it gets sent because you just never know how long it's going to end up taking until it gets to its final destination. So that's, you know, Ghent, Belgium, folks, is where the British and the United States uh, commissioners uh, convened to um, to uh, work out, or rather I should say to hammer out a peace treaty that officially ended the War of 1812. However, the Treaty of Ghent did not go into effect overnight. Because, if I'm not mistaken, what body of, uh, what body of the United States Congress has to uh, approve of the treaty? Is it the House of Representatives or the United States Senate? The Upper House, the a- a.k.a. the United States Senate. So the Treaty of Ghent does not go into effect until, Feb- until February of 1815, but the treaty itself was ratified that is approved on uh, February 17th of that year, and a day later it, um, it was signed by President Madison, officially declaring, or rather officially stating, that the war itself was to come to an end. However, did something happen at the start of um, January 1815 that was war-related? True or false? The answer is true. A battle took place 
down south. Does anybody want to know where the battle took place down south? Was it anywhere near the Mississippi River? Um, or was it um, somewhere, say, like in Florida, for example? All right, I'll give you a few choices. Did this battle occur in St. Augustine, Florida? Did it occur in um, Mobile, Alabama? Or did it occur in New Orleans, Louisiana? The answer is choice C, New Orleans, Louisiana. So, January 8th, 1815, the Americans, American and British forces squared off at New Orleans. The British forces, folks, were routed by American troops under General Andrew Jackson, who would later be, get the nickname of uh, Old Hickory. The British... Um, how do I say it? The British were very um, ill-prepared um, to go into battle at New Orleans, but their mission was to retake the territory, or rather I should say the Louisiana territory given to the United States from France between 1803-1804, with the hopes that if they were to win at New Orleans, that the U.S. territory from the Louisiana Purchase would become null, meaning it would become no longer relevant or... Um, it would no longer become um, a legal binding, um, not a legal binding document, but but in in the eyes of England, if they had won New Orleans, they could have they could claim the right to retake the all the land that uh, France had uh, given to the United States ten years earlier. So there mission was to not only win at New Orleans, but to take that territory, being the Louisiana Purchase, territory from the Louisiana Purchase, to where, um, to where America would not have any uh, land in that area. However, um, fortunes proved to be uh, in the right uh, hands for the United States, whereas the British endured roughly 2,000 casualties, the Americans only suffered 60. Many historians say that the Battle of New Orleans was one of those battles that probably didn't need to be fought, but hey, I think the icing on the cake was, was truly what was needed at New Orleans to prove to the British that, hey, we are a force that can, to not be reckoned with. We are a force that, while yes, may not be superior as you're alls, but we are a force that can, that can take on a fight. And by defeating you all, which they did, it's another good example of proving that the flag was still there. Because there was uncertainty going into 1815. And why not, why not uh, deliver that last uh, hurrah, that last major fight, the last major stand, and stick it to the enemy where it was sorely needed? This was an unpopular war, folks, going in, but I can tell you this much, and I'll mention it again here later on, America will come away in the end as a much better nation, having gone through this war. One thing I can say is that maybe it's fair to say that as James Madison's presidency is coming to an end, he's coming to realize that going forward, if the United States is to be a respectable country from a military point of view, 
that stand that uh, militias can no longer be counted upon to uh, go head to toe with formidable uh, superpowers around the world, most notably England and France. In other words, there has to be an army. It may be a standing army, and yes, there will always be people who may object to standing armies, even in times of peace, but the bottom line is a standing army has to be present 365 days a year to not only protect the people at home, but also to protect America's interests abroad, not only by land abroad, but by sea abroad as well, an army and a navy. So, you know, Britain, um, something that probably did help Britain is that when uh, Napoleon Bonaparte was defeated at Waterloo, France, France itself no longer became a direct threat to Britain. What agreements did Britain and U.S. commissioners come to? Both sides agreed to release all prisoners, returning all captured lands and ships amongst both nations. The United States received 10 million acres in returned land, or rather I should say in returned land territory near or around Lakes Superior in Michigan, including present-day Maine. 10 million acres, folks. That, that's a lot of land right there. As for the British, they retained um, all the lands in Upper Canada, or rather I should say in Ontario, Canada. All of the lands were returned to the British for their rights to uh, retain. So, hey, sometimes you may not like what's given to you in an agreement, but you do have to take what's given to you. Otherwise, how can any kind of agreement take place? Were the British uh, forced out from Prairie du Chien? Yes, they were. But prior to leaving, they destroyed a good portion of the fort before making their way to Mackinac Island, where they stayed until July 18th. American troops uh, took over uh, Mackinac Island after July 18th, where numerous American Indian tribes became displaced. Do you hear that, folks? Numerous American Indian tribes became displaced. And by becoming displaced, did these um, Indian tribes in the United States have a superior force that could look over them? No. But who was that superior force prior to the war ending? England. The future of Prairie du Chien and Labaye no longer their futures at both of these locations were no longer certain as the War of 1812 came to an abrupt end. Prairie du Chien, Labaye, thriving communities where Indians and uh, British peoples traded amongst each other, British um, officers marrying into the Indian families that uh, promoted great stability and ensuring that a greater force would be looking over those people to ensure that their lands would never be taken from them. Scary to think how when a war ends that 
relations from within can just come to an abrupt halt. And it's only a question of time before whether or not the relations themselves can be fully restored. And if they can't, then it's only a question of time before something else happens that could really become the straw that breaks the camel's back that becomes even more significant than what has already happened in the current state. What made uh, Article 9 to the Treaty of Ghent so important? I don't know if many of you all would know this, but that's okay. Because even I did a little research as well. Article 9 emphasized that all lands, rights, and privileges amongst the Indian nations prior to war breaking out become officially restored. So whatever uh, rights and privileges, including ownership of lands that Indian nations had along the frontier prior to the War of 1812 breaking out, those uh, provisions need to be restored in a timely manner. Now, remember I had uh, talked to you all from the previous uh, podcast, or rather mentioned about um, that Secretary of War under President James Madison, who pretty much, in my opinion, was responsible, along with Madison, I, I hate to say this about James Madison, but they, the two of them really were responsible for the um, debacle, and that they did not come up with grand plans or schemes on how to go about better fortifying Washington. Had they done a lot more of that, it's fair to say that maybe Washington would not have been burned. But um, does John Armstrong get replaced? Yes, he gets booted. Does anybody know who takes his place? Was it a, um, a Virginian or someone from outside of Virginia? A Virginian. Is this Virginian... A um, an insider to uh, to our nation's government. Yes, he is, but he's no stranger to politics. He served in the American Revolutionary War. He was a hero at the Battle of Trenton. Matter of fact, he rode in one of those uh, Durham boats across the Delaware River on Christmas night of 1776. He was a student at William and Mary. He would be tutored, or rather, I should say, mentored by Mr. George With. Um, whom was a very well-respected law professor at William & Mary, probably one of America's first true law professors. Matter of fact, of course, George Wythe mentored uh, Thomas Jefferson and John Marshall. He would go on to mentor Henry Clay. But how about James Monroe? James Monroe became the new Secretary of War. He was already Secretary of State, but as President Madison's administration came to was coming to an end, and most notably after the debacle in Washington, uh, Monroe uh, became uh, Secretary of War and held two uh, duties, Secretary of War and State. But James Monroe was greatly concerned about Article 9, especially considering that if hostilities were to cease altogether, the United States as a whole would need to establish new peace treaties per each Indian nation impacted by the conflict. And, and how true that is, because it's one thing for hostilities to end, but it doesn't mean that everybody just picks up their uh, luggage or what you call their baggage and go back to their uh, dwellings and live life as though nothing had happened um, in the present state. 
So for James Monroe, he's got being the Secretary of War. Yeah, I I think it would be very troublesome to know that. Okay, how are how are the the current people that is the settlers already living along the frontier? How are they going to be ensured that we are looking after them, and how can we ensure to them that that their uh, rights to uh, protection of private property, even life, liberty, pursuit of happiness are not taken from them by um, outsiders. Not just outsiders, but people um, whom we fought a war against because we're still fighting to ensure that our national security isn't jeopardized, but also to ensure that that the uh, future of the United States is still intact in terms of this uh, westward expansion that's going to, um, that will eventually one day um, become a huge um, mecca for um, for people going westward to populate the, the uh, territories that have not become uh, states just yet in the Northwest Territory. Ohio at this time is still the only one, but we do have to think about this westward movement especially if we want to ensure that our nation's national security is not in any danger. So, um, from mid to late May of 1815, there, there were um, sightings of Indian tribes, or rather bands of Indian tribes, attacking American settlements in the territories of Illinois and Missouri. So this, you can see now why James Monroe is very concerned, because he knows that the Indians aren't going to go away, he knows that the Indians can still put up a fight. Yes, the British have left and have now retreated to um, elsewhere, but the Indians can still do one last big hurrah. They could still find a way to perhaps take our men by surprise. So where do the U.S. commissioners where did the U.S. commissioners um, select as their peace gathering of tribes along the Mississippi and Missouri rivers? I don't expect many of you all would know this place, but I could tell you that this place still exists today. It's located in present-day St. Charles County along the Mississippi River. St. Charles, there is a place in Missouri called St. Charles, Missouri, which is located just outside of St. Louis, and um, the state that is uh, east of St. Louis, Missouri, is what state, folks? Is it Indiana or Illinois? Illinois. Remember I told you all earlier on that uh, Edwardsville, Illinois, was named after um, Illinois Territorial Governor Ninian Edwards? So Edwardsville, Illinois, borders uh, St. Louis, uh, Missouri. So the site that the U.S. commissioners uh, choose for their peace gathering um, for their peace gathering with the Indian tribes um, along the Mississippi and Missouri rivers is a place known as the Portage des Sioux. Anybody know what portage means? Portage is another term for water route. The route that you take along the lake or the river. And there is a place in northern Indiana, uh, not far from uh, South Bend. Uh, it's probably, it, it's I, I want to say it's right on the Indiana-Michigan line, but it's a place called Portage, Indiana. So whenever you hear of the, of the word Portage, think of a water route. Now, true or false, do one of the five Great Lakes 
uh, border uh, northwest Indiana? True. Uh, which lake is that, folks? It's the only, This lake is the only one that is confined solely to the United States. It does not go into Canada. Lake Michigan. So Lake Michigan borders uh, northwest Indiana, and there are plenty of uh, portages along Lake Michigan and northwest Indiana, a.k.a. routes. Who, um, on the American side, who goes about conducting these uh, form formal ceremonies with Indian tribes present to end all existing hostilities? Well, let me ask you all this. Um, is it someone prominent? Sure. Is it someone who led, was part of a famous expedition? Sure. How about William Clark? I agree. So William Clark conducts the formal ceremonies with Indian tribes present to end all existing hostilities. On July 22nd, uh, seven Indian tribes from seven groups uh, signed the treaty with the United States, but other tribes were hesitant upon um, attending the ceremonies, most notably the Sac and the Fox, whom refused to establish any kind of relations with the United States. Is it fair to say that um, those Indian tribes who did not appear at the um, formal ceremonies, especially before William Clark, were they considered to be enemies? Yes, in William Clark's eyes, they were. William Clark needs all of these tribes. I mean, yes, he's, you know, he had seven come um, by July 22nd, and seven's better than none, but he needs, he needs all of them to come together. Of course, this is controversial, but he needs all of them to come together because he's got to ensure that He's got to be assured that the Indians are not going to wage war on us going forward. Because if they do wage war, then he's, then, you know, Congress has to come up with new solutions on how to go about combating the problem. Because, yes, the Indians didn't have to worry about the British taking land from them. The Indians' biggest worry is our, our, potential encroachment or further potential encroachment on their lands that will lead to mass westward expansion. Maybe it's fair to say that both sides see each other as being invasive. You know, for the Americans, you know, we've just fought our second war of independence, and with our second war of independence, we do have a right to go westward. For the Indians, they don't want us. Because all we, they, for one, they see us as invasive, meaning not native to their um, territory. But two, they view us as people who have no boundaries and are perhaps driven by greed. And by greed, meaning money and land. Money and land do go hand in hand together. Not always for the right reasons. But that's how the Indians are viewing the Americans. Whom on the American side uh, persuaded the Sac and Fox leaders to think outside the box regarding relations towards the United States? How about Nicholas Boalvin? We haven't mentioned his name in quite a good while, but he's still at it. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that Nicholas Boalvin can't be forgotten uh, for all the work he did. He probably made as many sacrifices as William Clark did. 
Maybe he didn't get the same recognition like William Clark, but Nicholas Baldwin is one of those uh, people who, which you would call as a mid-level uh, person who can work with people high up and people below and find ways to maybe bring those people together to come up with some kind of solution that will help modify a would-be potential problem. So for Nicholas Baldwin, he advised a handful of Indian nations, including the Sac and the Fox, that should they choose peace, then the U.S. government would pardon them all. And when you're dealing with a mass number of Indian uh, peoples along the frontier, and you're wanting to pardon all of them, isn't it fair to say that the uh, United States government could issue an amnesty? You know what amnesty is, folks? A mass pardon of multiple individuals, or in this case of tribal nations, whom had, say, taken up arms against the United States in a time of warfare, now are coming to their senses and realizing that, hey, if we are going to be, um, if our uh, rights are going to be protected, or if we as a people are going to be treated properly, then maybe we need to end our hostilities. Well, one thing I do have to keep in mind is that, sadly, the United States um, broke many of uh, treaties with the Indians. That that could be a whole other subject, but I am aware that that's what happened. It didn't make it right, but that's sadly what happened and resulted in pushing Indians off their ancestral lands to where they in many of instances, got placed onto, you know, reservations. But in, but if you want to think of it as a better way of interpreting it, as uh, lands that most um, Europeans or Americans whom were living eastward were wanting to go westward instead to search for a better life, that is, the uh, reservation lands were not of their um, caliber. The reservation lands would have been lower tier, lands that perhaps no white man would have wanted. Did long-term peace exist between the settlers and the Indians along the frontier, including the prairie, after the War of 1812 ended? I probably did answer the question already, but I'm going to ask this to you all, especially since we have focused so much on Prairie du Chin. No. The, the answer is no. Uh, Long-term peace did not exist between settlers and Indians along the frontier. Starting around 1826, acts of violence erupted at Prairie du Chin, resulting in deaths on both sides, that is, uh, settlers and Indians. Come 1829, a series of treaties got conducted at Prairie du Chin, resulting in permanent removal of all Winnebago peoples from their land in the Michigan Territory, 1830 would be another um, hardship for Indians. Not so much along Prairie du Chen, but Indians living east of the Mississippi, whom had been living there for many of years, well before the first uh, Europeans arrived. Does anybody know exactly which Indian um, tribe was still living east of the Mississippi? They would have been living in what we now in what is uh, Georgia, far western North Carolina, um, easternmost um, edges of uh, Tennessee, or what we now or what we think of as the Smoky Mountains, 
the Cherokee. Congress in 1830 um, enacted the um, Indian Removal Act that was signed by President Andrew Jackson. Basically, the act stated that, um, that all Indians living east of the Mississippi would be forced off their native lands and be relocated uh, west of the Mississippi River into uh, present-day Oklahoma. Matter of fact, the uh, Cherokee were, uh, it was sadly known as the Trail of Tears, and rightfully so, because Indians were pretty much removed against their own will without any notice. Uh, most notably, the Cherokee, um, the uh, Seminole in Florida, uh, the Chickasaw uh, Creek, uh, the Choctaw, all those um, Indian tribes of um, of the south of the uh, southeastern uh, what we uh, knew as the eastern woodlands of the southeastern region were forced off their lands and into uh, present-day Oklahoma. So if you ever hear of places like uh, Muskogee or Okmulgee, um, Tahlequah, Oklahoma, those are areas outside of uh, Tulsa where um, the Cherokees and other um, Indian tribes like the Choctaws, Creeks, Seminoles, and uh, Chickasaw were eventually forced to relocate. So this Indian Removal Act um, pretty much um, did in what was left of the uh, Indian tribes uh, east of the Mississippi. There were uh, British forces at Drummond Island. They gave Indian peoples presence, but no military defense protection. So is it fair to say that even the British in the end screwed the Indians over? Yes. It just goes to show you, folks, that not all alliances are meant to be. And even when someone whom is as uh, powerful as the British are claim to protect those below them, that doesn't mean that even when war ends and when agreements are hammered out, that the people in the middle, being the Indians, are still going to be looked after. Sadly, they got displaced. How had the landscapes of Prairie du Chien and La Baie changed come 1840? Wow, that's about almost 20 years before the United States Civil War breaks out, folks. But uh, for one, the fur trade, which had flourished for so long, had now become dormant as Indian nations along the prairie became confined to reservations. French-speaking families went north and west, or rather north and westward, where the fur trade itself prospered. Why stay somewhere where there is no fur trade? Why not just go somewhere differently where the fur trade is and where more opportunities lie? Come 1848, Wisconsin became a state after first being um, officially declared as um, territory, Wisconsin Territory, 12 years earlier in 1836. But 1848, Wisconsin became a state. And eight years later, come 1856, all Indian tribes in Wisconsin either got placed on reservations or, or were forced out of the state altogether by relocating west of the Mississippi River. These are some very harsh realities, folks, of what happens when... Um, when the outcome doesn't go to your favor. Not just for the fact that um, you take up arms against, against the settlers, but knowing that the people above you, whom had been your 
allies for a little over 50 years now all of a sudden turn their backs on you. It's um, it's a huge, um, what do you call it? It's a huge act of betrayal. Maybe that's, um, or rather a huge punch to the gut. One that you don't recover from. Okay, so the United States pretty much has emerged as the victor here. So how did the war of 1812, after all, after all hostilities ended, make the United States better off? Well, for starters, America had won its second war of independence against a foe whom she was no stranger to, but the aftermath to the conflict helped rejuvenate national patriotism, which promoted an eventual era under James Monroe's presidency from 1817 to 1825 titled The Era of Good Feelings, which contributed to westward expansion movement along with revolutionizing transportation via waterways by linking the Atlantic Ocean and Hudson River to the Great Lakes, a.k.a. the Erie Canal. For those of you who were with me um, at the start of this year when we talked about the wetting of the waters, the Erie Canal, and the making of a great nation, well, you know, think about it. In the uh, post-war of 1812 era, the United States saw expansion and where was that expansion going, folks? Westward, not to California, but westward to Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin. And America's future prior to the War of 1812 and after focused on one vision, being that of acquiring lands in the Northwest Territory, where westward expansion was seen as crucial to securing the young republic's long-term future. Well, folks, this has been a phenomenal ride, but the journey doesn't end here. Um, I plan on being back on the air again soon with all of you, as I will um, look forward to uh, discussing a new series. I will tell you this much, uh, when I, um, the series that we will be doing next will be one that um, most of you all, most if not most of you, all of you will find intriguing. But if I tell you it now, there may not be a surprise. So I think it's best to leave to leave um, what we will be discussing in the next um, podcast uh, topic series as a surprise. But I hope all of you uh, benefited from this um, series, especially to all of you um, who live in Wisconsin, to all of you Wisconsinites out there. I hope that all of you uh, living in that uh, great state uh, learned a, a great deal of information about this war, but also knowing about the conflict that took place at Prairie du Chen that you might not have known about before. Matter of fact, I did um, find out not long ago online that there is a um, that uh, when you if you visit Prairie du Chen, there is a, a battlefield site there. There is a reconstructed fort. There is a museum paying tribute to this battle. So. Who knows, maybe one day if I do go out to Wisconsin and, and plan and visit the southwestern part of that, uh, the, uh, dairy, um, the dairy state, that uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to visit Prairie du Chen and understand in person just how uh, significant all of this was in securing America's future. After all, George Washington, before he passed away, 
knew that um, that in order for America to be a prosperous nation, she needed to expand westward to ensure that her national security would be um, would be would not be compromised, but that her national security would be one that would have better access waterways by linking oceans to the great by linking oceans and rivers to the Great Lakes. George Washington didn't get to live to see the Erie Canal constructed, but the construction of the canal, in my opinion, could be dedicated to him. After all, he was our he was the first he was first in the hearts of his uh, fellow American people for a lot of things, but it is fair to say that he could have been the the first in the hearts of his um, fellow countrymen when it came to um, transportation improvements, internal improvements, folks. So George Washington also knew that if uh, westward expansion didn't happen, that there really wouldn't be a true unified United States. Think about that, folks. So, you know, we've just when we think we've learned it all, we haven't. And while, yes, wars and conflicts don't always bring about happy endings, and yes, the Indians were displaced, and it would not be the first or the last time that they were displaced, history does tell us, or show, history shows us that while, yes, there is one group of people who, who emerge victorious, and there is another group that doesn't, but it's up to us to learn about this past and understand how everybody who participated in this conflict was impacted. Thank you again, as always, for listening, and I promise that I will be back on the air again at some point soon to discuss what we will be um, learning about in, in the next uh, podcast series. I can assure you that it will be a great one. If not, then you can only blame one person. That would be me, but I promise you I won't be making that mistake. Thank you again, as always, for listening. Uh, you all are uh, wonderful uh, listeners. I'm very thankful to have the audience that I have. Keep spreading the word out there. And for those of you who do want to come to Anchor, it's free. The opportunities are limitless, and the uh, results go beyond the sky ceiling. Thank you again, and stay safe.